Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so we've got Chris Cabrera, uh, who's an entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist. And he brings more than two decades of successful senior management experience, right from the earliest stages of a company through to an IPO. And today is CEO and founder of Exactly, a company that you founded in 2005? 2005, yep. Correct. Um, so Exactly is the market leader in on-demand sales performance management. The company's SPM suit of products enables sales and finance executives to design, implement, enable sales and finance executives on optimizing sales compensation management plans. Um, today we're at Unleashed, which is in London, so we're at the Ham Yard um, Hotel in the centre of London, and the focus of the event is on the SM, SPM space and the evolution from building and automating compensation plans to leading the um, SPM category. After 13 years, you've actually renamed the event, we've noticed, um, highlighting that you're talking about unleashing human potential. And we're really grateful for Patrick Morton, the VP of Sales in London, to organize this along with Lucy. And it's fantastic to have you here. So hopefully that introduction has given you some justice. I'm curious, you sitting in London right now, um, kind of what are you excited about being in London, Chris? Well, uh, I'm excited because I love London, and uh, I'm also excited because we have a, just had a great uh, session with many, many customers and, and lots and lots of prospects uh, and our great employees that are here. So there's a lot of energy over here right now. Fantastic. And uh, so we're, I'm kind of feeding off of that right now. I've just done a series of one-on-ones with some of our top customers over here, which has been – it's always great for me to get out and hear – how they're using our products, how, the, how we're helping them drive behaviors, how we're helping them, you know, basically sell more. And uh, anyway, so it's really exciting. I love, I love coming out here. Great, thank you. Um, one of the aspects that we care about um, for the Sales Confidence listeners is kind of about that authentic approach and the things that um, people really care about in terms of you as a founder, you know, ultimately it's your DNA that's helped create this business. So one of the questions I like to kind of warm up with, and I'm curious for you, um, when you wake up in the morning, what, what's the first thing that you think about? Well, I mean, besides what I'm going to wear, I mean, I guess I think about, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of pride myself on being excited to get up and go to work. Okay. Right. Um, it's one of the jokes we have in our family. You know, I a lot of people talk about working from home and things like that. I don't like working from home because I, I truly love going to the office. I like the camaraderie. I like the people. I like every part of it. So for me, you know, I, I pop out of bed in the morning very early and I'm, I'm excited to attack the day mm -hmm. and it's always different. You know, every day is different. And, uh, you know, so I think that's, that, that's kind of, uh, what I think about when I first get up. Okay. Um, and once you get into the office, clearly you have an inspiring presence um, and you're looking to motivate your team. Is there something that motivates you as an individual, you know, that's inspired you to create the business that you've gone on to create? Well, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I, I think that part of your responsibility is to, is to at least plant the seedlings of a great culture. Uh, I really believe that the culture comes from the people ultimately. So uh, there's nobody in our company. Like I, I, I often kind of chuckle a little bit when I talk to CEOs and they've got so-and-so as the head of culture. It's like, you know, that makes no sense to me because in my mind, there is no head of culture. It doesn't come from me. Yeah. Uh, the seedlings came from me. 
uh, for sure. But culture is something that comes from the people. And I've learned that over the years. I mean, we, you know, it used to be we were 25, 30 people all in San Jose, California. I could take the whole company to lunch. And so I could kind of control the culture when it was like that. Today, we're over 600 people in Toronto and in India and in London and in Denver and, you know, California and on and on and on. You know, the culture has to live in those places without me. And so I think that's important for uh, entrepreneurs to recognize that, you know, uh, while you can plant these seedlings, the culture comes collectively from the people. So our big thing is how fast can we indoctrinate new people into our culture and sort of infect them with our belief structure and, and our way of thinking and our core values. And oftentimes that doesn't, they don't fit and they get ejected out very quickly. Yeah. And we're very protective about that because we, want, we, we really believe that the culture is what makes the company. Okay, but where did that come from? Well, again, it comes from originally from the founder, the, the seedlings of it. But where know. did the seedlings, as you as the founder, I mean, you must have had some kind of direction or uh, insight or, you know, did you just wake up one day and you were Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't like I got tablets, you know, with it <laughs> engraved on it. I, I think it was something where we used to have 13 core values. Okay. okay? Like every, I mean, I went to business school. I, I went to, you know, MBA school. And so you, you, know, you learn that you, of course, have to have core values. So you start the company and... You know, you get all the people together and you create core values. And, and we had 13 of them. And you, we put them on the website. We had them on posters. And, you know, two years into the company, I started stopping employees in the hall. I'd say, hey, Johnny, what do you think our core values are? Hey, Susie, what do you think our core values are? And they would look at me like freaked out. And all of a sudden I would get like the trustworthy, loyal, <laughs> courteous, you know, the Boy Scout oath. And it made me realize we didn't have core values. I mean, if you don't, if people can't tell you what they are, you don't have them. And so long ago, we went through this process and we said, hey, the 13 things that we came up with are all good, but it's just too many and yeah. people can't focus on it. So we, we said, of the 13, which are the four that are like unbending that you can't live without? And that's how we came up with this uh, CARE uh, core values, which is customer focus, accountability, respect, and excellence. And that sort of became the marching orders of, of the company. And, and that was, this, as I say, the seedlings that have created this really incredible culture that's been recognized, you know, 16, 17 times as a great place to work or a top workplace or, and we're really proud of that. That's fantastic. As, as a performer, someone that needs to kind of get up every day and perform, um, has there been experiences on this journey, which is a long journey in terms of an individual founder yeah. that scaled a business, exited, gone through, uh, you know, an acquisition, yeah. that it couldn't be great all the time. Like, are there times when it's been difficult for you? And is there some kind of um, frameworks or references that you leverage to ensure that you can kind of get through and overcome any challenges that you may have had personally? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it, a lot of entrepreneurs and you know, certainly growing up in the Silicon Valley where some of the greatest companies in the world, you know, were, were born um, and, and certainly as a young person growing up and seeing all the, all the companies that were there, even when I was a young person, um, you know, it's humbling to have that experience, but you also realize that the life expectancy of a Silicon Valley founder of a tech company is pretty short. And um, I sort of feel proud that, you know, I've, I've lasted 15 years in it yeah. uh, as a founder. And, but I think the, the number one you know, answer to your question is I learned in some ways the hard way, but pretty early on in my career that 
if you if I didn't continuously reinvent myself, uh, things weren't going to go very well. And and it, and I had to recognize that the things that got us off the ground and got our initial you know four million dollar A round back in two thousand five, or got our first you know ten million dollars of revenue, that takes a certain type of founder, right? It's a it you know it's it's the true most entrepreneurial time you could have, right? It's it's the person that's literally the, C, the CEO is is like the sales rep, and you're going out there and you're, you know, whatever you can do to get money, to get customers, to get you know momentum. That skill set's awesome at that time, but the skill set to get you from ten to fifty million is a little bit different. And so if if you don't recognize that and figure that out and figure out how to change, likely you know that's why you see a lot of these founders not get to ten or not be the same person you know, that gets them to 50. They get taken out during that period of time. Those that do it figure out how to morph themselves and change themselves. And that just continu continues on because the skill, set, the skill set that gets you to 50 million won't get you to 100. And that skill set won't get you to 200, on and on and on. And so I just learned early on that you have to be a student of, of this and you have to be, uh, you know, kind of fungible and a sponge to learn and recognize that you don't know everything and that there's many, many people that, you know, no matter how successful you think you are, there's hundreds of people that are way more successful. And so I've always just been humbled by that and say, hey, I just got to learn from these people on how to be different and, and recognize that what got me here won't get me there. And what does that mean? How do I change? And I'm to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm changing and morphing myself as a leader. Yeah, so that I can continue to lead this company in the, into the future. So that, that that's a lot of insight and that's a lot of reflective self-awareness that you've had as an individual because yeah. there would have been times when you would have been advised to take a different track yeah. or you've had to <clears throat> stick to your guns. I think for the audience, I'm curious, um, bringing it now a little bit to exactly, you know, this suite of products that you've developed, you were talking about the maturity model today, Yeah. how so many companies are still living in a world of Excel, right? And how often um, it's overlooked or misunderstood about the power of automation. Clearly, I'm guessing you're here because you're still excited about the innovation that's coming from exactly. Could you just articulate what is the power of exactly? How are your customers leveraging this solution? And what's the future of exactly that's getting you excited? Yeah, well, you know, I, the story of exactly started around ICM, Incentive Compensation Management. And I've been excited about that for 25 years because as a salesperson myself and someone who's come up the ranks as a sales leader and a sales vice president, I've always, you know, basically been in sales or run sales organizations. Uh, I really understand the value of incentives to drive behavior. Yeah. And so that part gets me very excited. Um, I love, I've always loved, you know, at exactly being able to have these really fantastic conversations with companies to learn how they're using compensation to pay differently, whether it's Hyatt, you know, paying wedding planners or it's, you know, co companies that are, you know, incentivizing reps to you know do dump truck uh, you know the, the bins that you fill with trash yeah like incentivizing them it's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of yeah. right i talked today a little bit about the australia post office you know people being incented out in the outback to hang a shingle and sell stamps and collect mail that's very very cool it's, it's not so obvious i mean of course we 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 have great customers like linkedin and salesforce and docusign and more traditional sales forces that are a no-brainer to get excited about but i 
kind of also get excited about the ones that are a little bit different, you know, where, you know, it's the, you know, paying the medical doctors to incentivize or, or disincentivize long wait times in the office uh, or to disincentivize long waits on the kidney transplant list. Those kind of things do get me excited. Uh, so that's the beginning of exactly, and that's, and, we've, and that's our core for yeah. sure. But over the last number of years, we've really expanded that ICM to include SPM. And so this is where you add into this comp piece, you add the things that feed into comp, which includes sales planning and territory management and quota management and all that kind of stuff. And all, and then you talk about all the data stuff that, uh, around it, benchmarking and what. I mean, you'd have to really check your pulse. If you're, if you're not excited about this stuff as a salesperson, uh, then something's probably wrong with you. Well, uh, it's actually interesting because I remember my final quarter at LinkedIn and one of the, the, the relationships I had with exactly was looking at my commission check. <laughs> uh, and actually one of, the, uh, one of the greatest moments in my professional career was when um, one of my final paychecks um, was over $50,000. In fact, it allowed Congrats. me, thank you, it allowed me to set up this company. So I think it's absolutely right, like the interest for the sales professional to really care about their compensation is absolutely mission critical. Yeah. Um, I think further up the food chain though, when you think about um, the difference between the kind of art and science of a sales VP today, it's absolutely becoming much more science orientated, right. but the magic is kind of around the art. Yeah. Is, is there some kind of advice about f for, for sales leaders that maybe haven't quite comprehended the science yeah. of this? Like what do they need to be thinking about yeah. to ensure that they've got a competitive advantage? Well, that's a great question, and I, I think that there's two kinds of sales leaders right now. There's sales leaders who uh, understand the the value of incentivizing their sales teams and understand the value of data to drive performance, and there's salespeople who won't be in the job uh, much longer. Those are the two categories. And because the latter, the reason they won't be in the job is because they are they're going to get passed by by technology. They're still coming from the old school. And I'm not saying that they're old or, you know, they're, they're older generations. Yeah. I talk to young sales reps that don't get it or sales people, that, sales leaders that don't get it. And, and so part of this is this basic, basic understanding that comp does drive behaviors. And the reason we know that is that's the reason every company pretty much and across any industry actually pays variably. If they didn't believe that it drove behaviors, they would just pay base salary and I'd be out of business, right? Yeah. The facts are we know that it does drive behavior. So, so that begs the next question, which is, okay, if, that, if that's true, if we take that as a given that, that, that variable comp does drive behavior, how can you go to bed at night as a sales leader knowing that your sales organization is paying your people three to four to five to six weeks in arrears with no web-based visibility, no ability to look at their phone and, and see how they're doing in real time, that dangling carrot, if you will. I mean, that's a going out of business strategy yeah. if you're not doing that. And if your competitor's doing it and you're not doing it, I mean, it's just a matter of time before you're going to be on the unemployment line. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this has to do with, I think, the, the, the mindset of sales leaders has to change. Yeah. We see it changing pretty rapidly. But, um, you know, if you're, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a sales leader and you're still using spreadsheets, you know, chances are you, you're not going to be in that job much longer. Well, that's I know it sounds you know, <laughs> absurd, a, but, but it's a helpful warning. You yeah. know, I, I guess those though, those that are aspiring to be a sales leader, you know, maybe those reps. You talk about the impact of data on changing behaviors. 
and although you quantify the outputs of those inputs, what are those behavioral um, traits that you expect to see from so-called successful sales professionals? When you think about your own organization, yeah. you think about the thousands of sales professions you, professionals you've influenced or impacted or you've experienced. Like, what makes the difference from individuals that you perceive are going to be more successful from a behavioral perspective than others? Well, I mean, I think, look, I'm not the first one to talk about sales being, you know, uh, successful salespeople being able to take a lot of no's. And it's, you know, people talk about it's a, it's a, uh, it's the behavioral piece of it, right? How many calls a day you're going to make and all these kinds of things. And there's no question that, you know, people who work harder in sales usually generally make more money. But the facts are, it depends. The answer is it depends. It depends on what every company is trying to drive. And this gets back to, you heard in my presentation this morning, this notion of go ask the VP of sales or the CEO, hey, if you could wave a magic wand and get your sales reps to do something different than they're doing today, what would it be? In fact, what would the three top things that, you, that you'd want them to do, what would those three things be? And if those aren't the same three things that you're incentivizing them on, then something's wrong, right? My experience has been, having done this for 25 years, is when we ask that question, it almost never is the same three things they're paying on. In fact, usually they're paying on 10 things, and, it is, and sometimes it's some of the three things, but usually it's not. Yeah. A lot of times that's because they've built it in this manual system where they're sort of hamstrung to create the right way of, of motivating them. Uh, but that's where systems like ours come into play, where we can unleash people's ability to pay differently we can encourage them to pay differently. We can even give them data to show them how people in their industry, people of like size, you know, are, are being successful. And it's that's really where the the, the, the the magic comes in. You know, I think the data to if you're I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock to not be hearing about data and ML and AI and all this stuff. And again, if you're running a sales organization and you're not using data to help you drive behavior, well, you know, it's like you're just living in, a, in, in, in the Stone Ages. I mean, for this day and age. I mean, I, I just think that's uh, a mistake. In fact, to give you, give you a quick uh, point on that, we have collected data on all of our, uh, the people that we pay. Uh, it's an opt-in program from our customers, 95% of them opt-in for 15 years. And not every, we, we sell that data back to our customers in the form of benchmarks. Not everybody, 95% opt-in, but not everybody buys the, the uh, benchmarking from us. Those that do perform 10%, on average, 10% better bookings-wise against quota than those who don't use the data. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's like an intelligence test. You know, you know, I don't tell that to the customers that don't buy it, but you know, that's not by accident. Is it, is it my understanding um, that the equality project um, over at Salesforce was influenced by the data they had between women and men from a compensation perspective? Well, I don't know for sure. Uh, I don't want to overstate our, our value there. I know that, you know, just before they did that, we had done uh, the same study. It got written up in the, um, I think it was the, the Times, New York Times, yeah. uh, around our the work that we did. And then shortly after that, they did that study. Um, I don't know that I don't know that they were relying on, solely on any exactly data. I don't sure. want to mis misspeak on that. But whether they were or were not, that's that's a really important activity that everybody should be doing yeah. in, within their companies. Uh, they they should be running those kinds of, and we do it annually. And every year we find little little uh, adjustments that we need to make here and there. But 
but it's important that uh, I think companies are responsible about that and and pay people fairly, whether no matter what their gender is. The power that you have with all this data, have you noticed um, from a data perspective differences between the US market, the UK and Europe, or maybe not the differences on data, but the different approaches or the different stages, the journey. I noticed that you've just expanded, you're opening up in Paris, you're talking about opening up in Munich. Um, is there some kind of differences that you're experiencing that's getting fed back to you about how these markets are moving? Not really. I mean, I think that uh, the, the values that we bring seem to be pretty homogenous across industry and, and geography. I okay. mean, there are some um, Asian countries where, for example, we haven't really penetrated that hard because they don't use compensation as aggressively as some of the Western from a culture standpoint. Uh, but other than that, uh, we have not seen in our data, for example, when we do the, the, the gender study, which year after year after year shows that female reps outperform male reps and, and are underpaid, and that uh, female managers hire more balanced uh, teams of men and women okay. than do male managers. And so this is an area, and that seems to be consistent everywhere we run the, the data, whether it's uh, in the U.S. or we're over here. Interesting. Okay, cool. So we're coming to the kind of final part of, yeah. of the interview. Um, and interestingly, um, I was doing some research in preparation for this. And unfortunately, I had some real world research because I bumped into your sister um, <laughs> at the conference today. Yeah. And I was curious about kind of you as an individual and where this confidence came from. And she shared a little bit that even from a very early age in terms of being tasked by your father to do small jobs, paper rounds, that even back then you were thinking about territories and like how you could dominate markets. So is there, a, is there a story to you as, you know, Chris, before you were this founder, before you were this executive, you know, maybe when you were back at school that just made you this resilient individual um, that's allowed you to build this great company? Well, uh, I have to talk to her about spreading stories uh, <laughs> from the old days, but I don't know. I, I can't really think of anything too specific other than, you know, I grew up in a family where our father was a serial entrepreneur, uh, kind of before the days of all the VC funding. And so he was more of a, the bootstrap entrepreneur type. Yeah. And so, you know, I worked literally every summer of my life that I can remember, you know, with him and, and for him and, you know, saw the trials and tribulations kind of of, of the things that he did. And she's right, you know, I did. I was always doing something, whether it was a, a lemonade stand that my brother and I were doing, or, you know, we, we grew lettuce one year and we were selling heads of lettuce for 25 cents <laughs> in Boston. That's and we ambitious. Made, made a bunch of money. You know. Ironically, I was just thinking about that the other day. Like, what would I sell it today for, you know? I don't know what a head of lettuce costs these days. Is it a dollar? No idea. Maybe $2, $5, I don't know. Um, so I don't know. I think I, th I think a lot of that just comes from you know sort of what you're how you're brought up and yeah. and for me you know th that I, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I went to the entrepreneur program at USC, so it was kind of I knew it was just sort of a matter of time before I ended up doing that. But but uh, I was patient. I didn't start the company until I was 37 years old. And so when I counsel a lot of young entrepreneurs, uh, one of the biggest areas I counsel them on is to be patient. Too many entrepreneurs and, and folks, these young folks come out and they think they want to be CEOs and they want to start a company. And I think what happens is they tend to start things too early. They don't have the experience to do it. Uh, they don't have the, the kind of business acumen to do it. And then they fail. And that failure really hurts their psyche 
uh, on taking risks. And my thing is, you know, get a little experience under your belt, you know, learn, get a little bit of business acumen, get a, get a, get a solid mentorship, uh, you know, kind of network around you. And then when the time is right, start something. And I think, I think the odds of success will go up greatly. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of our listeners, we really care about and champion the SDR, for example. Yeah. You know, that first job out yeah. of college um, where you've got this exciting opportunity to join an exciting company, like exactly. And often feedback we hear is, you know, within the first six months, that SDR wants to become the VP of sales. Yeah. Um, it's moving very fast. And even um, the lecturer that was speaking um, this morning, uh, Dr. Paul Robson, um, was talking about that we're probably likely in this generation going to live to over 100, 105 on average. That's a long lifetime and therefore yeah. a longer experience in work. How, how do you counter that, though, when people, the younger generation have got this itch? You know, and it feels like everyone's successful today. You log into LinkedIn, there's another post about another raise, there's another product, there's another TechCrunch tech, uh, tech article. You know, you're, you're, you're overstimulated that success is very accessible and therefore you should just go do that. Yeah, so I think I would comment two things. I think, you know, the doctor today made a good uh, commentary on how everybody posts things on LinkedIn and all the social media sites that are very positive. Yeah. So I would first think that there's a fair bit of fake news out there on how great everything really is in everyone's lives, you yeah, know. And so if, if you're not experiencing that, like don't beat yourself up because a lot of this stuff is, is you know, self-propaganda. And, you know, we're guilty of that exactly like anybody. And I think, you know, so you kind of have to take a little bit of that stuff with a grain of salt. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is I think the generational piece is super, super important. And the successful leaders that will navigate it will understand that, yeah, you know, it's it's like sport today to to you know make fun of the the new generation and and how they you know they want to be the VP of sales every you know in six months, and but if you think about that from a leadership standpoint or from you know a manager standpoint, all you're really going to do is alienate yourself by pr propagating that and thinking that way. Why not just embrace that as a strong, powerful, cool thing? And let's figure out how to turn that desire to be promoted every six months into some kind of engagement energy that gets them working within the company. Yeah. So as an example, in our company, we had these BDR roles and SDR roles. And it used to be kind of you work for two years in that role, and then you can come talk to us about promotions. And when all this started to happen and we started realizing, geez, these folks really do have an expectation to be promoted every six months, we sort of said, why don't we create lock, you know, steps for them to do that? And so, so every six months, we can literally promote them. We can give them a little more money. We can give them a little bit bigger title. They're going to be happy. We're going to be happy because our goal is to keep them and promote them ultimately into other, other types of you know, field reps or, or inside sales reps. And it has been phenomenally successful for us, and our BDR-SDR program has been, I think, aided by the fact that we have these, these step functions where they can grow into it. And I think that's just an example of, you know, modern, solid leadership that's embraceive of the different cultures as opposed to, you know, kind of pointing the finger and going, oh, geez, you know, you're this way or that way. 
uh, that's more likely than anything just going to piss them off and have them leave you anyway. So essentially, you've kind of listened to that behavioral change and you're managing in that expectations. You're yeah. building into the development plan, but ultimately there's a recognition that you know certain <coughs> skills, capabilities need to be developed before you're going to make that step up, but you're encouraging them to make that progress. Along yeah, the way. It's, it's, it's just I'm a Gen Xer and I can't relate to a lot of the things that the younger generations are, are are all about, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. Sure. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means if I want to motivate them, I gotta I gotta understand that, right? Like for me, the notion of working from home is somewhat abhorrent. I, I a I don't like it. B you know it's just not my thing, and I, I like to see the whites of people's eyes. I like to see them in the desk working hard. And there's just a natural Gen X thing in me that if I don't see them working, they probably aren't working. Sure. I've struggled with having to, you know, come to terms with the fact that that's probably not true. You know, that many of these people are more productive working from home than they would be in the office. So it's hard for me, but I've had to stop overlaying my belief structure and how I grew up onto a whole new generation. And the more that I'm open to all these changes, I feel like the, the better our culture is and the, and, the, and the happier the workforce is. And it certainly doesn't seem like it's affected our productivity. So, you know, those are just further examples, I think, of um, this ever-changing growth story as a leader that I talked about. And, and ultimately, if you feel that you've got the data references, po those points you feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, if someone is performing and hitting their productivity targets where they work, as has an impact, it doesn't matter. That's right. Fantastic. Well, uh, hugely grateful for you being so open and honest and sharing yeah. your insights and this experience and this incredible journey that you've been on as an individual. You know, I feel that there's a lot of takeaways here uh, and also reference checks that people can make from listening um, to our podcast. Is there a, a final parting thought that you have in terms of being in London or something related to exactly or your personal experience that you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously my hope is, you know, I'm 15 years into a company, 25 years into a space. Um, I'm super passionate about the world of SPM and in particular the motivational side of it. That's why we talk about unleashing human behavior. And so, you know, certainly the more I can engage in conversations like that with people over here, um, the happier I'll be. And I think that we can impart so much of that wisdom that we can really help companies change the behavior of their people and change their top and bottom lines. And so my final word is just, you know, if you aren't familiar with us, you ought to be. And uh, if you aren't automating comp and doing all these kind of SPM things that your competitors are, you know, you ought, you ought to be doing it. Thank you. Well, yeah. it's been great hearing from you. Um, we're excited about your overall vision to uh, you know, unleash human potential. We care about unlocking confidence in the human population. They just happen to be sales and revenue leaders. Yep. Um, so I think we have some shared uh, values and philosophy. Uh, looking forward to enjoying the rest of the day, having a few drinks. But thank you very much <laughs> for being on the Sales Confidence Podcast. All right. Thanks for having Good me. Good man. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Cheers.